welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and provide a foundation for understanding it, whether you're actually considering a procedure or you're just curious. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan, and in this season number four, you'll find a new approach, including interviews and covering a wide variety of subjects. But after you listen to this episode, I encourage you to go back and really explore the previous seasons as they are full of valuable information. You get to pick and choose what to learn about next. Season one covers common aesthetic or cosmetic surgery topics and skincare, while season two explains reconstructive surgery topics. Then season three goes over general questions about plastic surgery. Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and opinion, as well as those of any guest interviewed. It is not intended to provide medical advice, nor is it a substitute for a formal consultation with your physician. So stay tuned for this interesting journey we'll take together in the ever-expanding world of plastic surgery. Let's go. There has been a lot of buzz recently around a class of medications called semaglutides, which were originally developed as a treatment for type 2 or non-insulin-dependent diabetes, but now are often used to facilitate weight loss under a physician's guidance. The most common example of these drugs being talked about is Ozempic, but others include Wegovy and a similar class drug called Manjaro. With weight loss can come changes in the fat content of body parts, and notably in the face, which is such a visible body part. To be clear, the face is not targeted preferentially by these drugs, but following any dramatic weight loss, meaning lots of pounds, the facial changes can go past what might otherwise be desired. So, are the semaglutide changes different than those found with standard weight loss by other means? Are they reversible? And how do you go about treating them? All of this and more is discussed in my conversation with Dr. Keith Ladner, an experienced facial plastic surgeon in Denver, Colorado and Beverly Hills, California. Listen in to hear his point of view. Well, I'd like to introduce Dr. Keith Ladner, who is a double board certified facial plastic surgeon practicing both in Denver, Colorado and Beverly Hills, California. That's pretty cool. And adding further to his diverse talents, he speaks three languages and regularly participates in adventurous outdoor sports. Welcome, Dr. Ladner. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me. What are those outdoor sports you like to do? So I grew up in Colorado, and so I tend to uh, take sports to the extreme when possible and when it's not too much. So uh, heli skiing is certainly one of those passions. And then the other thing that I like to do a lot is uh, hikes and climbs. Uh, I decided back in 2017 that I would uh, summit all the 5814ers here in Colorado and made it a goal of mine that I finally completed last summer. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Well, congratulations. Quite an accomplishment. Thank you. On top of your, your great practice. Um, well, speaking of your practice, could you tell us a little bit about the type of practice you have? What types of patients do you see or cases do you do? Absolutely. So I am a double board certified facial plastic surgeon. So that means that I specialize only in face and neck plastic surgery. So I'm not trained, nor did I have the desire, per se, to pursue plastic surgery for the other parts of the bodies and extremity. When I started my practice, like a lot of cosmetic surgeons, I was seeing a mix of patients, which included trauma, reconstructive patients, both from trauma as well as skin cancer reconstruction, a lot of functional types of cases. Uh, Obviously, with plastic surgery, there can be an overlap uh, between 
function and cosmesis. Sure. Uh, and then I was also at the same time doing purely cosmetic procedures. In the last five years of my practice, I have focused uh, solely on cosmetic procedures. So those include procedures such as rhinoplasty, nose jobs, face and neck lifts, uh, fat grafting, eyelid procedures, brow lifts, chin augmentations, and um, some other various small procedures here and there. Mm-hmm. Really trying to make the face look better. That's right. Or or good for their stated age. There you go. There you go. <laughs> and I understand that you may be working on a podcast of your own. Is that right? Yeah. Well, in fact, this is interesting timing because this is a, a brand new endeavor. Uh, so great. one of my good friends and colleagues, his name is Dr. Farhad Ardesh. Uh, he has an office in Beverly Hills, which is actually how I came to add a second location. And so he and I, over the last couple of months, came up with the idea that maybe it'd be fun, if nothing else, to start a podcast and really talk about the types of issues and questions that patients have mm-hmm. and do it in a very informal and sometimes, I think, uh, funny, satirical fashion Okay. Um, where there's no pressure. Yeah. And we can just sort of take patients' questions that they have, hot topics, oh, excellent. Uh, similar to what we're going to be discussing today. Yeah. And really kind of run with it. Like a call-in show? Yeah, exactly. So a call-in show, I think, is where we're headed. Um, Right now, we've just been taking online questions that um, they haven't been calling in, but we've been addressing. Oh, good. Good. But we hope to grow it. You know, we've had a fun time with our first couple of recordings. Oh, great. And so, uh, interestingly enough, this kind of goes to show you the humor of the podcast. The social media director person that we were using that was doing the filming for the first one, he said, you know, what do you guys want this to be called? And this was 100% sarcastic. Uh, by no means did we actually think this of ourselves, but we said, maybe we should call it studs and scalpels. Oh, there you go. So uh, I don't want anyone to ever take that seriously. Because, uh, <laughs> right. and, that, and that was why it was funny to us. Yeah. Because um, if you know our sense of humor, you know, we're oftentimes, you know, self-deprecating and um, certainly don't, oh don't think gosh. of ourselves as studs. Did, so is that what you named it? You know, that's the preliminary name. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, until someone comes up with a, with a better one, I, I think we might stick with it because, you know. So it's not published yet. It's not published yet. Yeah. So we're in the very embryonic stages of this whole production. But um, when it gets started, how can people find out about it? Should they go to your website? Will you announce it on your website? Yeah. The easiest way will probably be through our Instagram sites, okay. TikTok, uh, social media avenues. Okay. You know, right now we have approximately 10,000 followers on our Instagram. Oh, great. And we're, we're really looking to expand that as well as into some of the newer social media uh, avenues. Gosh, well, good luck with that. Thank you. Well, before we get into the details of our topic at hand, could you just first remind the listeners of the importance of facial fat? What are the pros and cons of facial fat? Absolutely. So again, kind of along with my joking demeanor, oftentimes with new patient consults, I try not to be too serious. Of course, I take patients' concerns seriously. I take uh, results yeah. and outcomes seriously. But I like to kind of set a light mood during my interview and their interview of me during the consult. And one of the lines that I have historically used um, is I always tell patients, I say, if you're looking for the cheapest option to get the best result for how your face is going to look, you could just go down to the corner of 7-Eleven and start eating Twinkies. <laughs> oh uh, and God. I say, what, what, what do you mean by that? And so I follow up and I say, well, if you think about maybe some of your overweight peers and friends and colleagues, um, a lot of times they tend to look very, very youthful in the face. Yeah. Right. And that's because fat is a natural filler. 
fat not only fills out the skin, but uh, it's likely that there's also those growth factors and stem cells that are found within adipocytes that also probably help the appearance of the skin itself. And so I always then follow it up and say, well, no one's ever taken me up on that advice <laughs> and no one ever goes to 7-Eleven and to eat the Twinkies because they also want their body to look good. Ah, uh, yes, this is true. So it's oftentimes a trade-off that we find uh, being in Colorado and now in California, uh, we're surrounded by a lot of fit, active, very healthy lifestyle clients. And so um, oftentimes... We do see a little bit of advanced or premature aging in the face that might not occur had they had that fat to really kind of fill out those areas that certainly when we lose that volume can make us look a little bit older or maybe more tired, not as well rested. Yeah. So part of what you do in your practice, I'm sure, is add some of fat back to those faces that are that are having some trouble. But that does bring us to this phenomenon that we're going to talk about today that's been labeled ozempic face. Could you briefly explain what that refers to? So ozempic is a, is a hot topic right now. And there's really kind of two medications to discuss here. So there's ozempic uh, and then there's also Wagovi. And so Ozempic is a drug that got its FDA approval in 2017. So it's only been on the market for six years. And it was really targeted for type 2 diabetics uh, that were having trouble controlling their blood sugar due to uh, lack of insulin that was, that was working. And so Ozempic then, as a side effect, patients and physicians started noticing that they were losing a lot of weight. And there was perhaps some cardiovascular benefit to this too, because of the weight loss. And it should be noted that Ozempic is not FDA approved for weight loss, mm -hmm. but because so many people were seeing such good results with Ozempic, we'll talk about the mechanism of action here in just a second. Now off label, uh, a lot of people have been using Ozempic for a way to get fast weight loss. In the United States, we are looking for quick results. Oh, yes, we do like that, don't we? Right, which maybe we'll talk about as an overlap, too, in cosmetic surgery and people hoping for, for fast results. Sure. And so um, the way that semaglutide uh, or ozempic um, works is in really two mechanisms of actions, which is that it is a, a long glucagon peptide 1 receptor agonist. And so what that really means in layman's terms is that it makes the stomach feel a little bit more full than it really is. Um, it delays gastric emptying, so the stomach basically just kind of holds on to that food for a little bit longer, and so folks aren't eating as much, and their satiety is reached with a lot less caloric intake. Mm -hmm. And then it's also thought to help uh, the pancreas release more efficient insulin when the blood glucose is high, and that's, that ties into that FDA approval back in 2017. Mm -hmm. So this end result of weight loss how does that affect the face and what kind of changes are we seeing to reach this entity that we're calling Ozempic face? Absolutely. Yeah. So the reason why this got its own name tag, uh, again, wasn't necessarily just because of the weight loss itself, but it was really the rapid weight loss um, that was occurring. And so we've seen this in clients for years pre-Ozempic. Uh, we've seen patients on other weight loss medications, phenamine uh, and uh, related medications, right. uh, where certainly rapid weight loss can occur. We've seen this even just with strict diet and exercise in patients where rapid weight loss has occurred. 
Uh, we've seen this with gastric bypass procedures. Mm-hmm. One of the more common reasons, if you can pinpoint it, other than just wanting a neck lift, uh, in my practice for um, folks that want to tighten the skin of their neck is because they've actually undergone a severe amount of weight loss because of a gastric bypass. So Zempic doesn't necessarily sit in its own category, mm-hmm. but because of the fact that so many people have been either prescribed this medication or perhaps are using it in a non-prescription based setting, and it's affected a wide range of folks here, we've seen a lot of rapid weight loss. And so the face, as stated earlier, can be very affected in its appearance when that weight does come off. So it's, it's more the speed of the weight loss that is leading to the ultimate difference in facial changes or outcome rather than total amount or percent of weight loss, or at least the speed is really a big factor here? Yeah, you know, I I would argue both. This medication works. Um, So it's the effectiveness of the medication and that lots of weight could potentially come off. Sure. And also how quickly it's happening. Um, So Mm -hmm. I think both of those play into it. When I'm speaking with clients in my office uh, for a consult for a neck lift or a facelift, and, you know, they, they willingly tell me that they're in the process of losing weight, and this could be, you know, with or without a Zempic, the question that I have is how much weight do you expect to lose? And so I'm always kind of figuring that in, and I'm going to use 10 to 15% as sort of my number to say, hey, if you're planning on losing 10 to 15% of your body weight, even if it's over the next six months to a year, I feel like we're going to optimize results if we lose that weight first. And then we come back, we regroup, and we see what skin has done after that weight loss. Absolutely. Well, if you don't mind, let's go through some specific facial findings that occur with this entity. Could you kind of take us through the individual components of the face, of what can happen to each with weight loss from semaglutides like Ozempic? I'm thinking of, you know, cheeks and periorbital uh, eyes and uh, even temples and neck. And if you just kind of go through some areas of the face so the listeners can have a better picture of what's happening with this relatively rapid weight loss. Absolutely. So the face is comprised of each side of the face. We believe at least 12 separately named facial fat compartments. And that becomes oftentimes a little bit arbitrary because they do tend to intermingle and mix with one another. Yeah. And so if you think about facial fat as compared to other parts of the body, there are a lot of small fat compartments. Mm-hmm. And so with Ozempic, that fat loss, of course, can occur and weight loss can occur in any of those, those 12 or more fat pads on each side of the face. And so depending on where that weight loss occurs, that's going to lead to perhaps a different entity in terms of the the appearance of the face. So um, you had mentioned temples. And so when we lose weight in the temples, we don't see saggy skin. We don't look at folks and say, oh my gosh, your temples are hollow. So, you know, I can see a lot of extra skin sagging in the temple. So you must have lost weight. No, we see that there's now concavity in the temples. So Mm -hmm. that fat no longer fills out that area of the face. And so folks look like perhaps they've lost weight or maybe they have a chronic medical condition that could explain it. We saw this, of course, back in the 80s and 90s with HIV patients and and, and, and other chronic diseases where despite their best efforts, they weren't able to keep on as much weight and volume in those areas. Sure. And similar to that effect in the temples, the submalar space, so the space just below the cheekbones, 
that's mm-hmm. an area where we oftentimes with, with excessive weight loss or a lot of weight loss and rapid weight loss, um, we start to see caving in of the tissues, right? Mm-hmm. And then when we look at the eyes and there's weight loss in that area, now it's sort of a different entity, which is that we start to see folks look a little bit hollowed out and tired. Mm-hmm. So now instead of looking like maybe they have a chronic condition or they've lost so much weight, now it's more almost a cosmetic issue where folks look at them and they say, you know, did you get enough sleep last night? Because that volume, right, really helps make people feel well rested. Absolutely. And when we move down the face, as we, as we lose the weight and get into the lower third of the face uh, or even the lower half of the face, we can start to see deepened creases, those meal labial folds, those parentheses that we see around the mouth. Mm-hmm. We can see jowling become more prominent, not necessarily because the fat actually created the jowls, but because the volume on either side of the jowl is no longer there. So now it's unmasking something that perhaps was there all along. Mm -hmm. So it's not holding that skin up anymore and things settle a little bit. Yeah, that's right. And then in the neck, certainly. So the irony is that when we compare the neck versus the face, for my patients, I always want to make the neck as tight as possible, right? Because that's what folks remember dating back to their 20s and their 30s. And when I say tight, not look like they've been pulled, just showing off that nice natural bony contour that they have in the jawline. Sure. Versus in the face, we're not typically trying to skeletonize faces. So even though they're next to each other, really a totally different approach and strategy for those two different areas. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, do you find that any of these facial changes are unique to Ozempic uh, or similar drugs? Or are they just similar to those patients who have had significant weight loss from other means? Yeah, I, I think that when we look at it, it's it's really similar, and all this is so new. So yeah. we're finding more and more out about this every year. And I think also as, again, more and more folks may be using this medication, perhaps not in the way that the prescribing physician intended or perhaps, again, outside of a prescription. Mm-hmm. What makes it unique is now the fact that it potentially is a very widespread, commonly used medication coupled with very rapid weight loss, now we're starting to see higher numbers of this occur Mm -hmm. versus just folks that, again, relied on exercise and diet and a little bit more gradual weight loss, then we're not seeing those drastic changes uh, with that approach versus the Ozempic. But if we compare it to other weight loss drugs or really strict diets, at least so far, I haven't seen that it's causing perhaps unique changes to the face. Got it. We all have our theories, but in my practice, I haven't seen that play out. It's an interesting thing to think about. Do you think that in addition to just the physical change of weight loss, do you think that there are sometimes some metabolic or nutritional changes from weight loss drugs, which might affect some of those supportive protein levels in the skin and the building blocks of the skin like collagen? What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, the difficult thing to know that would be useful to kind of compare from one person to the next on Ozempic um, is because we are calorically limiting that intake uh, for each person because of, again, that early satiety of the stomach. The question is, what is now the breakdown of those macros? So in other words, if that person is now getting full off a thousand 
calories, but it's only carbohydrates, then we would expect that preozempic, they're eating more, so they're getting sufficient levels of protein and fat. But now, perhaps, let's say that they're, they're kind of restricting their diet to carbohydrates or restricting their diet. Just what tastes good, yeah. Right, exactly, because it tastes good. So if you're eating less, then who knows, maybe you want to eat something that's going to be, be worth it. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of like vitamins, right? Where if you take a couple of vitamins, that's probably enough. And then the rest of it, our body will typically just get rid of it and excrete it. But perhaps if those calories aren't high enough so that they're getting enough protein and the right mix of protein, fat, and carbohydrates, then we certainly could see early aging in the skin itself. Yeah, that makes sense. And do you think that changes like this are permanent? I think that it depends on what a person does after this medication or, mm-hmm. or maybe they're never coming off of this medication. So again, this was FDA approved for type two diabetics. Um, they couldn't get good control of their blood sugar. And so this was a unique way to help them do that. And so if they're getting good results and their, their A1C level is now in, in a nice range, and, um, you know, the physician says, I want you to stay on this, then of course, um, we would expect those results obviously to be permanent because they remain on the medication versus someone that's perhaps experimenting with this medication. And they're using this as a kickstart way to kind of get their body in shape. It's hard to know if they then go back to eating a regular diet, are they going to, you know, regain the weight in the exact same distribution that they were pre-Ozempic? Intuition would tell you yes. Mm-hmm. Now, changes have occurred, though, and depending on the age of the patient. Um, so if you're 30, then obviously you're going to have a lot more elasticity in your skin. So your skin's right. going to be able to shrink and expand, shrink and expand, match those changes in weight and fat and volume. Versus if you're 60, 65, 70, 75, et cetera, then let's say you've lost that weight and now your skin hasn't been able to shrink along with that weight loss. And then as you fill it back out again, it may not still look as good as it did before. Yeah, Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Well, let's kind of break it down a little bit and talk about what can be done for these various aesthetic issues seen in Ozempic face. Um, Starting out with what issues could be treated non-surgically? Yeah, absolutely. So the root of all of this is volume loss, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, if you, if you have a pyramid here, well, at the base of that pyramid is volume loss. And so certainly any cosmetic surgeon, any cosmetic practitioner is going to think about ways that we can revolumize the face since we've lost that fat. This is also true for lots of world-class athletes, and there's no way that they're going to be able to keep volume on in their face, mm-hmm. given the amount of calories that they're expending every day. And so... There's lots of subtypes of how we can revolumize faces. The most simple form is filler, and filler has been around for, for decades. Mm-hmm. And so the most common form of filler used is a hyaluronic acid-based filler. Uh, these are your Restylane's and Juvederm's, et cetera. And those fillers come in a prepackaged sterilized syringe and can be used to replace that fat that was lost both in conjunction with patients' desires and where they want to see a little bit more volume. Perhaps mm-hmm. they're happy with some areas of volume loss, 
mm-hmm. and they don't want all right. that that volume back. Yeah. Uh, or perhaps they they kind of want a, a, a diffuse approach where a little bit is put in throughout the phase. Fillers are typically marketed to last six to nine months, but this would be topic for a whole nother podcast, but we've, right. we've come to find out that that doesn't always play out. Yeah. Um, and fillers can go away a lot quicker and they can also stay around a lot longer. Yeah. And sometimes that's not a good thing. But likely maintenance is required. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Yeah. So now patients are then finding themselves going back into their practitioner again, every six months to a year, perhaps, and having to repeat that filler injection as the body metabolizes that active ingredient, that hyaluronic acid. So that's the most basic form of revolumization, but there's also a lot of other alternatives. And so one great alternative, which has made a resurgence, in my opinion, over the last five years is something called Sculptra. Mm -hmm. And so Sculptra works in a completely different way than your hyaluronic acid filler, whereas I like to say, you get what you see or you see what you get with a hyaluronic acid filler. Yeah, you see it right away. You see it right away. So you know if you're putting one milliliter of filler in, you're getting one milliliter of volume. Right. Sculpture is a little bit different, and it dates all the way back to 1999, I believe. Uh, it was FDA approved, again, for those HIV-positive patients that were looking cachectic and wasted mm-hmm. uh, in the temples and that area below the cheek. It worked so well that they ended up getting the FDA approval for cosmetic purposes. Um, so it's been around for two and a half decades. Mm-hmm. And Sculptra works in a totally different mechanism in that when Sculptra is injected, the little spheres or particles that are injected underneath the skin and, and typically in a, a deep fashion, so well underneath the skin, uh, they incite basically an inflammatory reaction. Uh, your mm-hmm. body's response to that injectable is that it breaks it down. And beautifully enough, the side effect is you actually get new collagen production. Mm-hmm. And um, there's also thought to be a secondary effect, which is that it actually promotes the health of the skin. So the skin starts looking a little bit better as well. So that's also a, a non-surgical option that can be done in an outpatient setting with a very, very short appointment with a trained and skilled physician. And then there's also a replace like with like approach. So if you've lost fat, then why not put more fat in that area? Right? Absolutely. And so most of us have fat somewhere. Oh, yes. <laughs> Uh, whether it's the abdomen or the inner thighs, uh, two very common places that we take fat. And we can then use that fat from point A and put it into point B. And so this technique has been around for a long time as well with multiple uses, not just cosmetic, but also for repair of really severe traumatic defects. And again, not just in the face, but used throughout the entire body. And so the thought is with fat is that if we take it from point A and we move it to point B, well, now it's permanent. Mm-hmm. It's your own fat cell. And there are issues that can certainly go along with fat transfer. The biggest issue is the unpredictability of how much sticks around and also the variance of how much sticks around based on where you put it. Right. And I found in my own practice that there are areas that tend to be a lot more predictable and a lot more friendly. And there are other areas where not enough of it sticks around. Yeah, that can be frustrating. It can, it can. And one of the lines that I tell my patients is that your biggest fear probably when we start talking about fat is that I'm going to overfill you. Mm -hmm. And my biggest fear as a surgeon that does this is that I'm going to underfill you. Right. And so we know that going into it, we overfill on purpose, knowing the body can break some of that down and metabolize it. Exactly. And, and resorb some of that fat. 
And so it's always the possibility, some areas more than others, that too much of that volume goes away. Yes, makes perfect sense. I know from experience exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) And I will say, you know, we were talking about temples earlier. I found in my practice that using Sculptra in the temple area, you know, it's, it's something people don't pick up on right away, but after it's been treated, it is remarkable how much more youthful that person can look after just restoring a little volume there. So it's really quite amazing. Absolutely. Now I want to ask you about surgical intervention. When is that indicated and what specific surgeries might be helpful? Is it really just an issue of when there's so much extra skin you have to do something or what are your thoughts? Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's a really complex question with maybe even a more complex answer. Uh, but the way that I like to think about it is, again, if we compare Ozempic to just natural weight loss, what we want to see is stability. Mm-hmm. So I, as a surgeon, never want to shoot a moving target. So if someone's been on Ozempic for a couple months and it's really new, and they may be losing perhaps more weight in the future, or perhaps they reach a plateau uh, and, and they reach that homeostasis, or maybe they come off of Ozempic because they're having a side effect uh, from the Ozempic unrelated to the weight loss, um, then perhaps maybe they regain some of that weight. So whether it's weight loss or thyroid conditions, autoimmune conditions, we really want to see patients prove to us that they've been at that stable level of weight or stable level of health for a good amount of time. And then again, we're not going to be shooting that moving target. So that's really, to me, that's going to be the first important thing to establish. Mm-hmm. One other thing, which we should note as you know, both surgeons here is that anesthesiologists are now recommending that folks come off of Ozempic at least a week. So if they're getting weekly shots, that they come off of it at least a week before their procedure. And if you think about it, it makes sense because one of the ways that it works is that it delays that gastric emptying. And by delaying that gastric emptying, that would set up a patient for an increased risk of something we don't want with anesthesia, which is aspiration. And so if too much food is sitting on their stomach, and even though we tell them don't eat or drink after midnight or eight hours before the procedure, and that food's still there, that could lead to a disaster. Oh yeah. So those are also, you know, broad considerations. Mm-hmm. Once that patient has reached stability and perhaps it requires a second consult, I do that a lot with my patients that are undergoing weight loss as I say. That's a great idea. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, we're meeting each other today. You know, I've listened to your concerns. We've talked about various options. Let's have you focus on the weight loss. Congratulations, that's great. And then once you're at a stable baseline for three, four, five, six months, let's get back together and let's make sure that this is still the right decision, um, that we're giving you the right options and, and also being able to take photos and being able to prepare surgically for the procedure now that things have changed. Right. So that's also, you know, a broad consideration, but once they do become candidates, uh, to your point, it really depends on which areas now bother them. So, you know, most folks don't come into our office and say, hey, I want to treat every single line and wrinkle and saggy skin right. from my hairline down to my toe. Right. Uh, <laughs> and so clearly listening to the areas that bother patients is, is first and yeah. foremost, because again, there may be some areas where they've lost weight and they say, you know what? I'm happier for it. I have more definition now in my cheeks. Mm, I can yeah. see my cheekbones. I can see my jawline. And I couldn't before. So based on 
those different anatomic areas, that's clearly going to dictate what surgical options we're going to be discussing with the patients. But the biggest one, of course, and what's on the forefront of our minds here is, is certainly the sagging skin and or muscle. So facelift, right. neck lift types of yes. procedures, yes. Um, perhaps even a tiny bit of sagging skin around the eyes, um, although that can certainly be multifactorial as well. And so then we're talking about really elevating that tissue to where it used to be before it got stretched out by the fat. And now that we've deflated with the use of Ozempic, that volume, now we're kind of seeing where we perhaps might be had that fat never been there or perhaps worse because again, that skin got stretched out and with loss of elasticity, it stayed put. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, you touched on this a little bit, but let's delve into it a little bit more. What happens if there happens to be weight gain later down the road? You know, let's say the person went off Ozempic or for other reasons there is weight gain. Would an untreated person, meaning they didn't have any intervention by, you know, a plastic surgeon or anyone, would an untreated person be expected to return to their exact pre-Ozempic face? <laughs> it's a toughie, isn't it? It's a toughie. It's a it's a toughie. Um, and the reason it's a toughie is because there's two things going on at once. There's the Ozempic use of Ozempic, and then regaining the volume. So that's that's issue number one. And then coinciding with that is the fact that time is still playing its part. And I always like to again, you know, say a one liner about. Uh, about gravity with my patients, I always say that if we lived in outer space, I'd be unemployed. <laughs> That's perfect. Because <laughs> gravity wouldn't be pulling down on us. And so it's always the chicken or the egg story. And we say, well, is this where you would have ended up anyway? Or is this now a byproduct of weight loss and yeah. then perhaps some weight gain? And does all the weight go back to the same area mm -hmm. or does it redistribute perhaps differently? And certainly, we all know that our fat redistributes differently as we get older anyway. Truth. So again, was that Ozempic effect or was that just aging effect? And then there's the issue with, again, the stretching of the skin. So it gets stretched out and then, okay, you lose the, the weight and perhaps it, it responds somewhat, uh, but not all the way. And then you regain some weight. And so now what is the skin done with that new weight gain? And that's going to depend on age of patient and elasticity. So lots of variables, but I think the simplest way to answer that question is that it is going to change things. Yeah. Um, if you do undergo that rapid weight loss, and then if you undergo some weight gain in the future, you're probably going to be at a different point in time than had you never been on that medication and then regain the weight later. Yeah. Well, and I think and some listeners are going to wonder, what if a patient has had some type of treatment? Let's say they've had filler, uh, or, you know, or, or sculpture, et cetera, et cetera, and then they go off the Ozempic and then they start to gain weight. What might they expect with those weight fluctuations in the future? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we have to be smart as surgeons. And so anytime I hear that a patient is, has had recent injections of filler, uh, assuming those injections are reversible. Um, so the hyaluronic acid uh, fillers, the Juvederms and Restylane's and so forth, we have the technology to melt that filler and break it down into water via an enzymatic reaction. And so anytime I'm considering surgery in a patient 
and this has nothing to do with Ozempic per se, sure. uh, but when they report recent history of filler, and quite frankly, um, if folks tell me that they've had filler around their eyes, I'm going to pretty much always assume that, that filler is still there because mm-hmm. uh, I've seen enough patients that hold on to that filler forever around mm-hmm. the eyes, mm-hmm. um, which is one of the reasons why my practice, both myself and my injectors, we don't actually use filler around the eyes because we've seen the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. But point being is we want to establish a baseline and know exactly where that patient sits for preparing for the surgery and also making sure we're doing the right amount of surgery and the correct surgery. And so I will always preoperatively dissolve any filler that can be dissolved. Now that becomes a little bit tricky with Sculptra. So getting back to your question, yeah. because Sculptra is, is that. changing <laughs> yeah. by itself by the yeah. day. Yeah. And so, you know, we typically don't see the results of Sculptra for two, three, four, five, six months. And the sculptor is creating that collagen formation, that volume formation, and it can last for anywhere between two years to five, six years. And so that's certainly going to be a moving target. And so I think if a surgeon and patient decide that that surgery is the correct solution for them, I think one of the most important things during that consult is to be very forthcoming and straight to the point and say, we're taking you as you are right now with a single data point. And that doesn't mean that things could not potentially change over the years as those other interventions start to work or go away. And so we may have to consider doing small little secondary work um, down the road, not because surgery was a failure, but because we're going to be at a different data point. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, gosh, you've been so informative today. (laughs) You just really have broadened the horizons of all of our listeners, so I appreciate that. And speaking of horizons, I want to know what you see on the horizon. Any facial rejuvenation advances that are just not quite here yet? Or if if there's not much, is there anything you'd like to see that's not yet being developed or pursued? Any ideas? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think as cosmetic surgeons, we think about these things all the time. Absolutely. Uh, I think... I think when we're in the operating room and, um, you know, we're doing this very complex surgery, I think all of us at some point in time have thought to ourselves, like, why do we not have something better yes. than what we have right now? Right. right. And I'm sure all industries think this, whether you're a yeah. you know, computer software engineer or a plastic surgeon. Um, but, you know, the two things that always come to mind for me um, when we get back to fat grafting is the unpredictability of fat grafting how much we'll survive. Yeah, right. How much we'll survive and being able to be more precise with that technology. Yes, yes. You know, we've had alternative options such as Renuva, which is an allograft, not a fat, but the stuff that surrounds the fat. Mm -hmm. And so that was an idea that unfortunately, in my opinion, hasn't played up to its gold standard counterpart, which Mm -hmm. is the autologous fat grafting. But something like that where we could just inject it and we know exactly how much is going to stay mm-hmm. and we know that it's going to survive mm-hmm. and it becomes more predictable. So certainly a technology of that fashion uh, would be amazing, I think, for all fields of plastic surgery. And then the other thing that always comes to mind for me is control of skin in a non-surgical fashion. As a facial plastic surgeon, I do a lot of facelifts and I do a lot of rhinoplasties. And I think One thing that's oftentimes either miscommunicated to patients that undergo a rhinoplasty or nose reshaping procedure 
is what the skin does after the procedure. Mm -hmm. And so everything we read online, and you even see this on physician websites, is it says, oh, your nose is swollen for a year to two years. And I tell my patients, I say, that's total baloney. <laughs> I say, you could be in the world's worst car accident, okay, and crush your nose, and your nose would not look swollen for a year. So why are we using this term that the nose is swollen when really, in fact, it's because we're making a smaller nose. We're making the bone and cartilage smaller, generally speaking, with rhinoplasties, not always. Mm -hmm. And now we have to wait for a miraculous thing to happen, which is the body has to shrink the skin of the nose by itself without us doing anything to match that shape that we've created. So it's really skin shrinking. Recontour itself, yeah. Recontour itself. So I always think to myself, how great would it be if we had some technology, right? I mean, we think about lasers and things like that, but they just haven't played out. Some technology that would allow that skin to shrink in a much quicker fashion and predictable fashion so the patients could see the results sooner and perhaps even get better results. Mm -hmm. And then that really also plays into non-surgical facelifts, right? So the gold standard still, and, and for the foreseeable future, uh, will remain a true surgical facelift. All the technologies that have come out to try to mimic and parallel facelift, unfortunately, just aren't as good because that skin has to go somewhere. Yeah. And once we've reached the age for a facelift, we've lost that elasticity to allow for those non-invasive, non-surgical technologies. And so we're just not there yet. And I think that if we could have something like that, how great it would be for patients to literally not have to undergo any anesthesia, to not undergo a big procedure, just an in and out of the office type of procedure where they're back at work and they let the skin kind of do its thing over the next you know, few weeks or months. Well, that will be a great day and I'm waiting for that day. <laughs> <laughs> As am I. Yes. Well, any final thought you'd like to leave the listeners with about our subject today or just plastic surgery and cosmetic facial surgery in general? Yeah, I, I think that Ozempic is a really good parallel to cosmetic surgery, sort of think of it as its own entity or own two entities. And what I mean by that is that number one, Ozempic is new and evolving. Techniques in plastic surgery oftentimes evolve and we get better at them. Mm -hmm. And so the longer that Ozempic is around, the more we're going to know about it, the better we're going to be able to treat it. And that's really true of advances in technologies and techniques kind of across the board when it comes to cosmetic surgery. And I think the other thing too is this relationship that physicians and patients must have and that oftentimes it's really a working relationship um, where things can change. We see new things occur, whether it be with Ozempic or otherwise. And then we say, okay, now it's time to do a small little intervention to get you the best possible result. So it's not always a one-and-done type of procedure in any plastic surgeon's office. Mm -hmm. Yes. Wise words. Well, <laughs> Dr. Keith Ladner, thank you so much. You've been just a delight to chat with here and uh, share your knowledge. And I really appreciate you spending some time with us on this podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been delightful. And I, I look forward to listening to a lot of your other episodes as well. Oh, great. So I can learn a few things. Oh, listen. <laughs> All right. Take care. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. 
It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded.